Good morning, Keystone. Uh, I started a series five weeks ago. I uh, said I was going to preach three messages and kind of be spread out over the next three months. Uh, and so if you're like me, you probably forgot everything that I talked about five weeks ago. Uh, I had to go back and look at my notes. Remember, all right, what did I talk about? Uh, what were some of the things I hit on? So just a, a quick recap to get back into what we're talking about. I said that there are all sorts of things that we wait for in our lives. And that some of the things that, or many of the things that we wait for are related to desires that we have for our life. Circumstances we want, things that we want to happen to us or to others that go unmet or unfulfilled. And you could fill that list up pretty, clue, pretty quickly. That it could be something like a spouse or a child or uh, getting direction for our lives or healing or test results or uh, discovering, God, what do you want me to do next? Or having a prodigal child return home or seeing a loved one again or whatever else we might fit in that category. And I, I said that uh, our lives, I think in many ways, are spent waiting for something. That as soon as we're done waiting in one area, we find ourselves waiting in another area again pretty quickly. And if you're a Christian, your life is marked by continually waiting for Christ to return. And so waiting is a big part of our lives. And if that's true, then we should want to know how do we wait well? That, that's really where we're going this morning. The, the big question I have for us to hopefully answer this morning as we look at Scripture. If waiting is such a big part of our lives, then we should want to ask and answer, how do I wait well when I find myself waiting in this life? Uh, we're going to be in Psalm 37, so you can open up there if you want. I'm curious how many of you have one of these in your house somewhere. Some of you definitely do. Uh, this is one of the most prized possessions in the Kaufman household at this moment. You, you might think I'm exaggerating, but I'm not. Because the reason is this makes all the difference between us when we wake up at six o'clock having five minutes to ourselves in the morning to having an hour to ourselves in the morning. Because this is an alarm clock for kids who don't know how to tell time yet. And so you set the time the night before, uh, 7 o'clock at our house, click the alarm button, and a red light comes on. Wait, what, what does red mean? Stop. Don't go. Stay in your bedroom. And then at 7 o'clock, boom, the green light comes on, and now it's time. He can leave his bedroom, come downstairs. Uh, and the yellow light, like a good yellow light, really means nothing at all. I think it's just a uh, night light on this thing, actually. This is about the only red light that I like. Because I'm a person who tends to run late. And part of why I run late is because I estimate how long will it take me to get from A to B based on I'm going to hit every green light perfectly. And some of you, some of you do the exact same thing. I, I know it, I know. 
The problem is most times when I have to drive, I have to go along Lincoln Highway. And so the chances of me hitting every single light green are about the same as me winning the lottery, I think. And so I'm usually hitting red lights and, and running late, running behind. And when I hit a red light, I see it as an annoyance, a, an interruption to my plans and my time and where I want to get. And in reality, red lights, most of them, maybe not all of them, are specifically planned to get me where I want to go as well as everyone else in one piece. We tend to view waves as an interruption to our plans because that's what it is. We have a plan for our lives. We've got a plan for what our future looks like. And to have to wait, we think that's just an interruption for me getting to where I want to go. But God sees waiting as an essential part of his plan for us. And we could go back to the Bible and see how many of the stories in the Bible involved people waiting in some way. To see that waiting is an essential part of God's plan for us. And so if that's true if it's an essential part of what he's doing in us, his plan for us, then we should really want to answer the question, how do we wait well? If we're going to spend time waiting in our lives, and it's going to be a key part of God's plan, how do we wait well? And I think we can find some answers to that question in Psalm 37, a psalm that's written by David. You can look at the life of David, get a glimpse of his life in 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel. The boy who was anointed king, who then defeated Goliath and lots of other enemies, who was on the run in the wilderness as Saul tried to kill him, who eventually became king, who then eventually had to go on the run again when his own son tried to kill him. And you can just see so much of David's life is spent waiting in one way or another. And not just waiting for like, I want something to happen, but waiting, not knowing if he's going to wake up alive tomorrow, not knowing if his enemies are going to come kill him. And then we get Psalm 37. And it's a psalm that David likely wrote towards the end of his life. Because in verse 25, he talks about, I was young and now I'm old. And we can picture this king looking back over his life, all his difficulties and struggles, all his successes and defeats, looking back at all the ways that God made him wait in his life, and then writing this psalm that lifts up the providence of God over a sometimes confusing and mysterious life. And in the first seven verses, which is what we're going to look at, we can see David answering that question, how do we wait well? Taking the years of knowledge, wisdom that he's gained as he waited, putting it in a psalm, passing it down, all that wisdom for us to take in, soak up, meditate on, so that as we find ourselves waiting, we might know how to wait well. And so let's read in Psalm 37, the words of David. We'll go one through seven. 
Fret not yourselves because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as a light and your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Father, thank you for your word given to us, written over many years by many different people, but ultimately with one author, you, speaking to them, through them, and now ultimately to us. God, we come this morning many different, in many different stages of life, many different concerns, many different weights that we bear, many different joys that we experienced this past week, many things that we're longing for in our lives. And God, it, it looks different for lots of us, but we all come together with our faces turned to you looking to you this morning. We want to hear from you. We, we want to hear you speak. We, we want to see your face and be reminded of who you are. And so God, I ask that you would speak by the power of your spirit this morning. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, one of the things you maybe notice as you read through those first seven verses of this psalm is that David is really just giving some commands along with some promises. And so all we're going to do this morning, it's pretty simple. We're not going to do anything elaborate, I don't think, is just look at what are those commands and promises and how do they answer the question, how do we wait well? And, and we'll, we'll see five ways, I think, these first seven verses of the psalm help us to know how do we wait well. First of all, that we fight the fretting. Before David gives us a positive command in this psalm, which he'll give several of those, he, first, he gives a negative command, saying, don't do this. And what does, he, what does he say? Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious because of wrongdoers. I, I love that word, fret, because I just think it has the image of someone being stirred up. And we should ask, why would I fret over evildoers, over people that I think are evil or wicked? Why would I envy them? If they're experiencing something in their life that I long for, but I don't have, then I'd start to fret. And we can do that just as much with our enemies or people who we think are maybe evil as we do with our friends and the people who are closest to us. Who hasn't, at some point in their life, looked around, looked at someone else, and said, why? Why do they get to enjoy that? And I don't. Why? Right? And what fretting does is it takes that question, and rather than moving on, it stews over it. It gets upset, 
It gets angry. It keeps asking over it. Why? Why do they get that and I don't get this? And, and in our waiting, as we're tempted to fret, we, we should be reminded of a couple things with fretting. First of all, we should be reminded there's a hidden belief behind fretting. There's probably more than one, but, but here's a big one. Why do they get that and, and I don't and I'm going to fret over it? What's the hidden belief? God isn't doing his job right. right? God isn't doing his job. There, there's something somewhere along the line, God's providence, his working, ordaining all things is flawed. His dispensing of gifts, it's skewed. Someone, someone needs to audit him because he messed up somewhere. And behind that belief lies another belief, I think, that says, it's God's job to give me what I want and make my life what I want it to be. It's so easy for us to have a false job description of God and therefore assume that he should be doing things in our life that, that maybe that's not actually his job to make our life as easy as possible or give us all that we want. And that's why we then start to fret and get upset with him. This, this would be similar to if I, when I take my car to the mechanic in January, February I think, to get inspected, and I drop my car off and give the mechanic the keys, and I walk away and go about my day, and they call me and they tell me your, your car is done, and I come back and I pay them whatever they say I owe them, and I get my key and I go out to my car, and I immediately turn back and go inside and start complaining and saying, my car isn't washed. My car isn't waxed. That trash that I had in my car this morning, you didn't clean that out. You didn't do your job. To which the mechanic would rightfully respond, that's not my job, right? My job is not to do that. My job was to inspect your car and to have it pass inspection. And just because I had a false idea of what they should do, doesn't mean they weren't doing their job. It's, I think, so easy for us to slip into thinking it is God's job to make my life what I want it to be. And it's not. It's God's job to glorify himself and to change us and transform us into the image of Christ, not to make my life all that I want it to be. And with fretting, too, we should not just see the, the hidden belief, but see the corrosive effect that fretting has on us and our lives. Fretting's a little bit like acid, that you dump it on something and it starts to eat away at it. In fact, I, I loved, uh, was reading what Charles Spurgeon says about this passage, and he compares fretting to heartburn, <laughs> like this burning inside you, this acid inside you. To, to fret over what I don't have in this life that other people have would be a little bit like me taking a teaspoon of toilet bowl cleaner, dumping it in my water, and then drinking it down and saying, well, it's, it's only a small amount. It's, just a it's acid. It'll eat away at you. And in the same way, fretting will eat away at our lives. It'll steal our joy and lead us down a path of just being discouraged. 
It will make us doubt God's goodness, question his providence. It will eat away at our relationships. To fret over what we don't have as we wait is a corrosive thing on our lives. And so David, I think, then gives us some, a response to, okay, how do we fight back against the fretting? Because in verse 2 he says, For they will soon fade like grass and wither like the green herb. And he, he's talking about the evildoers in this passage that he's looking at, but this is a description that applies to all humans throughout the Bible, that our lives are like grass, here today, gone tomorrow. To which we might say, we should take an eternal perspective on our waiting. And that that can help us not fret. Because waiting seems to take forever in the moment. But one day we're going to look back and realize it was but for a moment. And we're going to see that every moment that we spent waiting was ordained by God for our good. That is a way that we start to fight back against fretting. And so then we don't waste our waiting, fretting over what we don't have. Now, I, I, I was thinking that this week, and I was thinking, that sounds trite, though, to say, you, you know that deep desire you have for your life, that thing you long for, that thing you want? Just don't worry about it. Just don't think about it. What? That, that, that's almost not, that's, that feels impossible. But I don't think that's what David's doing because in the next verses, he's going to tell us, here's what you should do with those desires and those longings as you wait. He's going to tell us, shift the weight or the burden of your waiting onto God. Shift the burden of whatever you're waiting for, that unmet desire, and shift it onto God. Roll it into his hands. He says in verse 3 and then again in verse 5, Trust in the Lord. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will act. The first and most consistent act of waiting should be prayer. To which I immediately look back at myself and I think, do I, how often do I spend as much time praying about what I'm waiting for as I do fretting over it? And the answer is, I often spend far more time fretting and worrying about it than praying about it. And that's likely true for probably a lot of us. Why? Because I'm actually convinced deep down that my fretting, my actions will do more than God can do. That, that's why I don't pray more often about the things I'm waiting about because I think what I'm able to do with this, which is very small, that somehow that, that can do more than what God can do. And as we wait, God's telling us, stop, stop, look to me, trust me, commit your way to me. And, and we do this, I think, first of all, by continually rolling our burdens into his hands. Uh, the, the word commit in verse 5, commit your way to the Lord, has this idea of actually like rolling a stone away. I think it's the same word uh, that the Bible uses when it talks about Jacob rolling a stone off of the well. That he's taking this heavy thing and moving it away. 
And we can get this picture of that we take our frustrations, our discouragements, our fears, our anxieties, and we roll them off of our shoulders into God's hand. And we say, here, this is yours. You uphold me. You act for me. I I can't. And we do that over and over and over and over and over again. I think sometimes we think we only need to do that one time. Like I'm waiting, I'm struggling in this area, I'll pray, I'm discouraged the next day, that didn't work, what what happened? Because we're supposed to be doing it over and over and over and over again. I think about, for myself, as soon as I roll out of bed in the morning, what's the first thing I do? Not pray, that's not what I'm going to say. I run to the coffee maker because I'm still in a mental fog. I'm somewhere between like awake, half dead, and I think this coffee is going to make life look different for me. It's going to make this day appear better. I know you you hear that, you're like, that's addiction. Uh, I call it, I call it stewarding God's gifts really well, okay? So we can debate on that. But the point is, I don't do that one morning and then think, okay, I don't need to ever drink coffee again. I do it again and again and again and again and again and again. And yet, for some reason, I think when it comes to praying and rolling my burdens off myself and onto God, well, I just do that once and that should take care of it. And then I get frustrated and worried and anxious and I think, well, that didn't work. Well, because we're meant to do it over and over and over and over and over again. And as we do, we also commit our desires to God's care. Think again, just about that word, commit your way to the Lord. What are we doing when we commit something to someone else's care? We're taking something that's really valuable, really important to us, and we're giving it to someone who we trust to take care of it. Uh, I think every mom knows this feeling the first time that they left their child with someone else and walked out the door. Because you take this little precious thing, this so, person that is so valuable to you, this person you've spent the, every, wake, every moment with, every waking moment with, that you've cared for, that you love, and, and you're just supposed to hand them to someone else and walk out, right? Meanwhile, dad's there like, let's go. We've only got two hours. We got to get out of here. But mom's thinking, I, I, I don't know if I can do this. Okay, and, and walk away. And I would guess the first person that you leave that child with isn't a 14-year-old high schooler. It's probably your parents, right? Because I can trust them to take care of what is so valuable to me. When we take the things that we long for, our desires that are going unmet, unfulfilled, and give them to God, we're saying, I I trust you with this. This is so important to me. This matters so much. But here, I I trust you to take this. I trust you to know what to do or to do what's best with this. It's not, I don't believe it's a mark of spiritual maturity to stop longing for God's good gifts in this life. To say, I don't care about that anymore. But I do believe it's a mark of spiritual maturity for us to over and over and over again entrust our desire for those good gifts to God and say, you know what's best, right? And then look at what David says in verse five, after he says, commit your way to the Lord, trust in him, 
and he will act. We act by rolling our burdens and our desires into God's hand, and then he acts for us. Isaiah said this in Isaiah 64, 4 as well. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. Does that mean, okay, that means God's going to give me whatever I want? No, we know that's not true. Because the very faith of committing our desires to him says, God, I, I want this, I long for this, this is a good thing but you know best and I trust you to do what's best for me in this area of my life. I trust you with whatever this future holds in this one area. And when we trust him with the future, then we're able to focus on the present that's right in front of us, which I would say I think is the third way David's telling us, how do we wait well? Focus on the present. Immediately after telling us to trust God in verse 3, we find these words then. And do good, dwell in the land, and befriend faithfulness. It's so easy for us when we're waiting for something to get fixated on the future and think this is what really matters, the outcome of, in this area that I'm waiting for, and miss the present that's right in front of us. And that's not just a danger when we wait. That's just a constant danger of being humans living in a fallen world, I think. And, and David gives us some instructions on, here's how to focus on the present that's right in front of you and not miss it while you're waiting. Uh, if you live in Lancaster County, which all of you do, you have seen this site many times over in your life. And every time you go past a horse and buggy, you probably don't even notice it anymore because we don't think about it, uh, but the horse has certain things right beside its eye. And, and a person who might drive past a horse and buggy for the first time might think, that, that's cruel, right? They're not letting the horse even see out as that horse pulls the buggy. What, what's going on there? But why are those blinders on the side of the horse's eyes? to keep the horse from getting distracted and spooked by everything else that's out there and instead focus its eyes on what's the next step that's right in front of me. David gives us in some ways two blinders, I would say, that, that we, we can put on our eyes to you'll say, okay, what can I focus on right now in the present? First of all, to look for the good that God is calling you to do. Right? Let's just say, trust in the Lord and do good. What is the good that God's calling me to today? Who does he want me to serve well? Who does he want me to love well? How does he want me to change and grow spiritually? Who does he want me to talk to about Christ? How does he want me to encourage someone else? All these questions, what does God want me to do today? Perhaps one of the best ways to focus on the present rather than getting caught up in the future is to ask, what does God want me to do today? John Bloom uh, says this about these verses. He says, it might feel to us like the things we're waiting on God for are the main things. But someday we might discover that the most important fruit ever produced in our lives came from faithfully doing good while we waited. 
And I believe that's part of what verse 6 is saying, where God talks about bringing your righteousness out in the sun, shining a light on it. This idea of those small acts of obedience that didn't seem like a big deal to us in the moment one day might be some of the biggest thing that God shines a light on and says, look, look what I did here as you obeyed me while you waited. Let's not fall into the trap of thinking life starts or even life gets good when I get my driver's license, when I get married, when I have a child, when I get a new job, when I have grandchildren, when I retire, when, whatever, when this relationship gets restored, whatever else it is we're waiting for, let's not fall to the trap of thinking life really starts then and miss all the good God's calling us to as we wait. And then the, the second thing I think David says in here is look for the goodness of God to you. That, that's a really difficult thing to do if we're waiting for something really important because it's so easy to become so consumed with this one really good thing that I don't have. But then we miss all the thousands of ways God is good to us even moment by moment. So David tells these people, and he's talking to the Israelites in the land of Israel originally, says, dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Another way to actually translate that is dwell in the land and feed on God's faithfulness. What's he saying to them? Look, look at the ground beneath your feet. Look around you. God brought you out of Egypt. He removed the Canaanites from this land. He gave you this land as a gift. Look at what's right here, how God's already been good to you. That sunshine that you had, that rain that came today, that food, that drink you had, that's God's faithfulness in sustaining you over and over and over and over again. That David in some ways is saying, as we wait, Kyle, don't miss the ways that God's already been good to you, that he's being good to you day by day by day by day. Don't get so caught up in the future that I miss the present and how he's already been good. Next, we get to what is perhaps one of the most well-known verses in this passage and maybe sometimes one of the most misunderstood. Where David says, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. On the one hand, I think that sounds a little crazy. Rejoice in God while my life isn't going the way that I want it to be. That sounds a little crazy. On the other hand, I think it's really easy for me to twist that and to think, okay, if I just set my eyes on God, try to rejoice in him, try to please him, then he'll give me what I want over here. And so I'll do this to get this. But that's not what the verse is saying because if we delight in God, he is the greatest desire of our heart. And therefore to give us our desires is to give himself to us. One of the questions I think we inevitably end up asking while we wait I would guess everyone asks this question sooner or later in their life. Why is God withholding a good thing from me? 
Why is God withholding a good thing from me? Like, I can understand if what I'm asking for is bad. If, if I'm asking for the Dallas Cowboys to win the Super Bowl, I get why God wouldn't give that to me. That makes sense, okay? I don't need to question that. But what about when I want something good? And I mean something that he says is good in his word. Children, a spouse, healing, restored relationships, work, all sorts of things we could look through as we're inside. These are good gifts, good things. Why is God withholding a good thing from me? I, I don't pretend to have the full answer to that question because, frankly, I, I find myself asking that question at times, whether it's for me in my life or, or for someone else in their life. But I do think that this psalm and, and other places in the Bible at least give us a portion of an answer. And so we could look at a passage like Deuteronomy 8.3, which I think elaborates maybe a little bit on what David is saying here. Here Moses is recounting Israel's journey through 40 years in the wilderness. And, and one of the things he says is this. And he, God, humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Did you catch what Moses said there? God let you go hungry. God withheld your most basic need, food. Sure, then he fed you with manna, but God let you go hungry for a time. Why? So that you might know God is even better than bread. So that you might know God is even more satisfying than this thing that I long for so deeply in this moment. We could say God withheld a good thing to give them a better thing. And we do this in our own lives even. I, I think about uh, deer hunting season is already happening, I guess, but coming up as far as rifle season in Pennsylvania. And I know that some people in Keystone, maybe a lot of people, are avid deer hunters. And I might ask you two weeks from now, after the first day out, Hey, did you see anything? Did you shoot a deer? Did you get anything? Get anything. I don't know if that's the right word. Did you shoot anything? Did you get a deer? Uh, and you might respond, because I've had people respond to me this way. Well, I saw some doe. Uh, I saw a six-point buck. I saw a seven-point buck, but I passed it up. I let it go by. To which I'm thinking, wait, wasn't the whole point of you going out in the woods, being out in the cold, sitting out there all day to shoot a deer, and you passed one up? Why? To which your answer would be, because I believe there's a bigger one out there, an eight point, a 10 point, a 12 point, whatever it is that maybe you've seen on your trail cam. And I'm waiting, passing up a good thing for a better thing. We do that in all sorts of areas in our lives. You could probably come up with other examples. And if we do that, why would we expect that God doesn't do that as well for us? If he's infinitely better than us. And so as we wait, we dare to delight in God. Dare to delight. That, that we, can we actually believe that God's withholding something good from us to give us something better? And if we do believe that, might we not uh, delight in him 
the God who's that good. And as we delight in him, might we not find him to actually be better and more satisfying than what we're waiting on, even if we never get what we're waiting on. That we dare to delight in God. And so I think two ways that we are able to do this is we interrogate our desires and we ask ourselves, why do I want this so much? Do I believe that if I get this or this circumstance happen or whatever it is that I'm waiting for, that somehow I'll be happy and life will be all better for me? Do, do I believe that actually what I'm waiting for, that whatever it is, can do what only God can do for me, satisfy me? So we, we ask those questions and then we indulge in the one who does satisfy us. That we go to God and we say, God, you alone will satisfy me. Satisfy me. Help me to rejoice in you. Help me to have more joy in you than when everything's going right in my life. We, we say to God, you alone satisfy me. We tell him, because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. We sing what we sung this morning. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. We find the things that stir our hearts for God, and we practice those things. And we believe that he satisfies us more than whatever we might be waiting for. And as we do that, then David gives us one last thing. He says, wait patiently for God. In verse 7, he says, be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. How do we do that? We see that God is God. We're really bad at being still. Or I'm really bad at being still. Maybe you feel the same way. That I rush from one thing to the next to the next. That my mind's always on something. That I'm always, it's always worrying about something or thinking about what's next. And to stop and just be still is really difficult. And yet when we look at God and we fixate on him and we see how great he is and we worship him for what he's done and what he's like, we find that stilling our hearts and souls and minds. And then the, the second thing is that we see that the story isn't over yet. God's timing, we know this, doesn't operate like ours. And so we wait patiently on him when we believe that. Charles Spurgeon, again, put it this way when he talks about this verse. says, time is nothing to him. Let it be nothing to you. God is worth waiting for. In a story, we wait for the end to clear up the plot. We ought not to prejudge the great drama of life, but stay till the closing scene. When we see that the story isn't over yet, we can see that our waiting isn't simply an interruption, but it's part of the story God is writing in our lives and in this world. And we can believe the story that God is writing for me is actually far better than the one I would have written for my own life. Therefore, I'll wait patiently for him. This leads to the, the big idea that as we wait, we shift Shift your attention from what you're waiting for to who you're waiting on. We wait patiently for God. We dare to delight in him. We, we do the good that he's calling to right in front of us and see his goodness. We, we commit our desires and burdens to him over and over and over again. And we fight fretting. 
But we've got to recognize two things as we wrap up. One, you and I will fail in every single one of these commands as we wait. I'm absolutely going to fret at times as I wait for something important in my life and worry about it. There are absolutely going to be times where I don't commit my desires to God, pray to him, and think and said, I've got to figure this out. There's absolutely going to be times where I miss his goodness and miss the thing that he's calling, to me, calling me to right in front of me. There are absolutely going to be times where I don't delight in him and said, think, I need this to be happy. There are absolutely going to be times where I am impatient and complaining to God. And the beauty is that even when we fail to wait well, God is waiting on us to be gracious and merciful to us day after day after day after day. I love this. This is what Isaiah says in Isaiah 30, 18. He says, God's waiting. What is God waiting for? Therefore, the Lord waits to be gracious to you, and he exalts himself to show mercy to you. Even as I fail to wait well, God is continuing to be gracious and merciful to me, though I don't deserve it. And here's the second thing. The only way that we will obey any of those commands for waiting well is if we first believe God is absolutely for us and that he delights in us. Because I'm absolutely going to fret and worry if I don't think God's for me. So I don't know how it's all going to turn out. I'm not going to commit my desires to him if I don't know that he's actually good and can be trusted. I'm not going to do what he says is good if I'm not sure if he's good. I'm not going to delight in him if, if I'm not sure he cares for me. I'm not going to wait patiently for him if I think the story he's writing might not be a good one in the end. The only way that we'll have power to actually obey all these things is if we believe God is 100% for me. 100% for me. And so I will wait well for him. As Paul says in Romans 8:32, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us how will he not also graciously give us all things? When we believe that, when we believe the gospel, we wait well. Let's pray. Father, our eyes are on you. So often confess that uh, our eyes get distracted from you. They, they get on other people and what they're enjoying, what I don't have. They get on the difficulties that I'm facing and, and I stew over those or we stew over those. God, help us to see you. Help us to see how great you are as you rule over our lives. Help us to see how good you are in Christ, to know that you are for us no matter what comes our way. And I pray that as we wait, wherever we wait, that we would be people who wait well on you saying, we're going to wait for God and we're going to trust him to act. Pray this in Jesus' name.